We've already said that this uh, book of Philippians is Paul's happiest letter, and we call this series Surprised by Joy. And what we've been trying to do is to notice as we go the things in which Paul is finding his joy. Um, when we looked at the opening verses of chapter 1, uh, we saw Paul finding joy in the partnerships that he had. Feel free to just scan the text to remind yourself. There's a, an opening prayer from verse 3 down to verse 11 of chapter 1 uh, where Paul's giving thanks for his friends in Philippi. So he's finding joy in his partnership with the folks in Philippi. Um, last week we looked at verses 12 to 26 of chapter 1 where we find joy, Paul finding joy. I've actually changed my title from last week. I hope you don't mind. I said last week that it was about preaching Christ. I think it's a wee bit broader when I had another look at it. It's about promoting Jesus. He finds joy in promoting Jesus. Um, He talks a lot about preaching, but he also talks even about whether I die or whether I live, I want to exalt Christ. There's something about how he lives and how he speaks that he, he finds joy when he gets a chance to promote Jesus. So, Joy in his partners, joy in promoting Jesus. Today we're going to see another thing that Paul finds joy in. And um, as I tried to to capture it and see what it is, I think he finds joy in in Christ-like believers when he sees people living like Jesus. So we'll come back to that uh, as we go on here this morning. Richie showed us last week that Paul's letter is a friendship letter, and that is he's writing it to people he considers his friends, and it's a a common literary form. But one of the things about these friendship letters is that they tend to move back and forward. Uh, It's sort of about me, about you, about me, about you. So last uh, week, we heard uh, Paul talking a lot about himself and his circumstances, So now in chapter 1, verse 27, for the first time, he really starts to talk to the Philippians about their circumstances. So what's he going to say? Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner manner worthy of the gospel. I'm going to treat that verse as an umbrella over the whole of today's passage, okay? So I'm, I'm running with the idea that that verse... Everything that Paul says after that in our passage is, is somehow commentary on, on that verse. What I think he does is in the, the closing verses of chapter 1, he talks about uh, living worthy of the gospel in the city, in the public sphere. And then in the opening verses of chapter 2, he talks about living worthy of the gospel in the community, uh, in the church. So just, uh, just a bit of a framework for where we're going this morning. How is it that Paul wants these guys to live worthy of the gospel in Philippi? The closing verses of chapter 1. It seems that they're facing opposition, a bit like Paul is. Look at verse 30. Paul says, you're going through the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Paul's in a Roman jail. And there seems to be some sense that people in Philippi are struggling in their relationship with uh, the the Roman regime. We'll get a chance to talk more about that as we go further with the letter. Uh, There'll be opportunities to work out what exactly that might have been about, what form that was taking. For today, it's maybe enough to say that the Roman persecution 
um, that started not too long after the birth of the church was simply one moment in time where followers of Jesus Christ suffered. Throughout history and right up to modern day, um, well, there's a poster we sometimes show in church. I wonder, is it on? It's not on the wall at the moment. Open doors create a poster with a, a picture of the world on it that shows just a whole load of, uh, of locations where people suffer today uh, because of Jesus Christ. So Syria will be on there. North Korea has been prominent for quite a while now. Other places, places where if you stand up for Jesus Christ, you... You face opposition and you suffer. There are people in your community who'd be glad to see you wiped out. That's often been the case throughout history. But I I sense things changing. Although we're not at that stage, I I really do sense in the last few years that in the post-Christian West, there's a a sort of a, a militant... Uh, cynicism, uh, a militant skepticism that's that's starting to make it quite difficult to be a a public Christian even just in Belfast. That that time, I think, uh, is is coming or, or maybe even has come. It's easy to feel intimidated. But Paul says we shouldn't. Why not? Well, People do have the power to harm us. They, they might even have the power finally to kill us. But Paul would say in the end they don't have any final power over us. Jesus once said they can kill your body but they can't kill your soul. If you're disciples of Jesus Christ, he's promised that he will never leave you. As far as Paul is concerned, he has this idea that Christians live by a belief that Jesus Christ is Lord. But you live out that belief in a world that doesn't believe it's true. Okay? So we believe that Jesus is Lord in a world that doesn't believe that Jesus is Lord. That explains the misfire. That explains the awkwardness, the misunderstanding, the, the opposition that we sometimes experience. Suffering is inevitable in Paul's eyes. The suffering of Christians becomes, comes particularly for this reason. It's because they're loyal to a different king. The world will finally be opponents of the gospel and they will turn on us for stepping out of line. I was trying to think of examples. Where does this happen? I, I, I suspect there was a time when this ha- wasn't happening very much when Britain or Northern Ireland uh, understood itself to be a Christian culture and allowed its public sphere to have a broadly Christian shape, a Christian sort of a landscape. But those days appear to be ending. So I'm thinking, where, where is this conflict going to arise? Well, try telling people whose lives revolve around sexual immorality that Jesus calls us to use our bodies to give honor to our creator. Try doing that. 
and see if that doesn't raise some problems. Try even, even just warning people to slow down in the sanctioning of the taking of life, be it the abortion of an unborn child, the ending of life at the end of life, or taking the life of a somehow vulnerable person. Try even contributing to that debate and see if there isn't opposition. Try challenging a society like ours that talks a good talk about all men being equal, but then perpetuates systems of inequality that keep some people more equal than others. Folks, I'm convinced that if I have the courage to follow Jesus Christ and to do it in a public place, I'll have problems. I'll have opposition. We're going to get a chance to think in our discipleship groups um, about that a little bit more. Tease out the, the kind of area that have been in this last two minutes. Where are those areas where we already sense uh, there's opposition? I, I've only touched on, on some of the, the, the key ones that I could think of, but you'll, you'll have other examples. We want to talk about that, uh, encourage each other in that, and pray for courage to live lives worthy of the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about here. We're going to spend... So Paul's talked here about living lives worthy of the gospel in the city, a place where Christians are under pressure. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning in chapter 2, looking at those first 11 verses, where he's talking about how to live lives worthy of the gospel in your own community, in the church. Some of that passage might have felt very, very familiar to you. Uh, The poem there in verse uh, 6 to 11 is very famous, very famous part of scripture, very well known. It's quite tempting when you look at that passage to imagine that that is the crux of the passage. I don't think it is. I think the poem is there to serve a purpose. So what we're going to try and do is understand what Paul's saying and why the poem's there and what purpose it's serving. We don't want to miss Paul's point. Remember our umbrella verse, chapter 1, verse 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's already talked about how to do that in the city, but now in these opening verses of chapter 2, he's talking about how to do this in the church family. And the basic gist of what he's saying, I think, is round about verse 3. Second half of verse 3. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. This, says Paul, is how you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel in your church family. In verses 3 and 4, I think you can see Paul's experience as a pastor. He says some things here you wouldn't maybe think of saying if you hadn't tried leading a church. Do nothing, he says, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Why does he say that? Because he's been around churches long enough to know that this danger is always at the door. 
I know from experience that some of the people who have floundered most in Christian community are those who have some sort of unhealthy ambition. Their relationship with the church, with the community, is more about what they can get out of it than what they're hoping to contribute to it. And with that, with that ambition, sometimes goes a vain conceit, a, an overinflated idea of ourselves, of our wisdom, of our depth of Christ-like character, our spiritual maturity. Paul shows a better way, verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's one of those ones where Paul says, don't look to your own interests. You know, don't read it wrong. It's okay to be interested. It's okay to come to a church family and to say, yes, I want to learn there. I do want to find fellowship. I want to be given avenues for meaningful service. That's all okay. Those things should all be happening in a church, but they need to be happening for everyone in a balanced way, not, not just for me. So look for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Don't make church all about you. Make it about us. That's what Paul's saying. Jesus stands at the center. The whole family gathers around him. So it can't be about me. It can only ever be about him and about us. I think we're beginning to see what what Paul's topic is. Now, Now let's take a step back and see this whole passage and see how it, including the famous poem, how it all works. In the first couple of verses, Paul reminds these guys of all the wonderful benefits that they have in Christ. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit and purpose. Paul's listed five wonderful aspects of a Christian's life with Christ. Christ encourages us. We're never entirely hopeless when he's nearby. He brings us comfort when our hearts are broken. A lot of people in this community can speak to that. Times when they've known God's comfort. He invites us into fellowship with him. We can't be truly alone when the spirit indwells us. Christ invites us to a life of tenderness and compassion. Paul's basically saying, listen guys, think of all these glorious things you've experienced in Jesus Christ and then pass them on. If you've experienced them, if you've received them from the Lord, make these your currency. Pass them on to those around you. Learn to think like Jesus. He's the one who encouraged you, now encourage others. He's the one who brought you comfort Now bring comfort to others. Luther once put it like this, the 
great church reformer. He said, I'll give myself as a sort of Christ. I'll give myself to my neighbor, sorry, as Christ gave himself for me. I'll give myself for my neighbor as Christ gave himself for me. What I want you to notice before we come to look at the poem, because I think we're, we're ready to see what it is and how it works. This passage is all about following Jesus' example. He's already told us, verse 2, that we're to be like-minded with Christ. Learn to think like Jesus. He reinforces that, verse 5. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So, so there's different ways to motivate people to live. Paul might have said, for example, he might have said, remember the Old Testament law. There's a lot of good stuff in there about how to treat people. You know, live that way. But he didn't. That's not how he chooses to motivate the people. He didn't talk about general human decency. Let's be really top guys and girls. You know, the best in the class. No, It's not Old Testament law. It's not general human decency. It's Christ-likeness. That's that's the the touchstone for Paul's teaching here. That's his, his invitation. And it's because he wants the Philippians to imitate Jesus that the poem then happens or is placed in our passage. In verses 6 to 8, look at it with me. Paul reminds them of the... The, the very, the, the complete humility that Jesus showed when he lived among us. Jesus had it all. He, he shared a status with God the Father in heaven. All the glories and riches of heaven. But he relinquished them all. Gave them all up so that he could come among us and be one of us. But folks, Jesus didn't, didn't leave it there. His coming from heaven to earth his taking on human form, that's not the limit of his humiliation. When, when Joan Osborne famously sang that song, What If God Was One Of Us? She thought that was a radical thought. Hasn't read scripture. God did become one of us, and then some. He dropped through the floor of what human nature is he humbled himself, lived a peasant life, and finally died a death on a cross. Do, do you know what a Roman cross is? It's not mostly... The big deal with a Roman cross isn't the fact that it's an excruciating instrument of torture. There, there are loads of, loads of ways to kill people that are painful. It, it just happens to be one of them. That, that's not the main function of Roman crucifixion. In the Roman Empire, the cross was used to humiliate the person who was crucified. So if I was discovered to be an enemy of Rome, they would take me and they'd find some busy highway somewhere, something like the Newtonards Road or or a junction. They'd go up to the, the Knock Junction and they'd put a cross up there and they'd nail me out there. And the whole point would be for every passerby, look at that scumbag. That's what happens to people who mess with Rome. You hang there naked, you're half beaten to death, and then your life 
ebbs away from you in weakness and defeat and humiliation. That's the Roman cross. And that's Jesus Christ. That's how he humbled himself for us. Paul's drawn us back into that, I guess you'd call it the Holy Week narrative, the the Easter story. And it does, do notice that the poem goes to the, the resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus. But Paul's talking about humility. Before we leave verses 6 to 8, I want to get a wee bit grammatical with you for a moment. See that little word there, verse 6, being. I'm going to focus on that for one or two minutes. It's so important. Jesus, who being in very nature God, that participle being is known in the Greek as a circumstantial participle. And that means you don't really know what it means except in the context. You use the context to help you understand what it means. So it, it has a range of possible meanings. There are a couple of different options. Let me, let me suggest to you what I think the two options are. There might be others. It could mean this. Jesus, although or in spite of the fact that he was God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And from one point of view, that makes perfect sense. This is how I understood this passage for most of my life. Jesus, in my mind, becomes a servant in spite of the fact that he's God. It's like when he leaves heaven and comes to earth, when he lives that humble life, when he dies that sacrificial death, he's taken 33 years out of his normal way of being. It's like he's acting almost out of character for a while to get something done. He becomes the humble person. As I say, that's what I always understood this text to be all about. Recently I've been introduced to a different and very powerful and challenging way of thinking of this. We take the circumstantial participle to express cause And that means you translate it like this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who precisely because he was in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. This is huge. Do do you see what, what... this would mean and what we'd be saying here when Jesus humbled himself and lived as a peasant and allowed himself to to be crucified he wasn't acting out of character he wasn't doing that in spite of being God he did it because he was God and this is in his nature And this is who God is. You ever wondered why pomp and pretense and pride 
are not only really irritating in the church, but look really stupid. You ever wondered? I think we're close here. It's because of who we follow. It's because of the one we're called to imitate. He didn't have the capacity for pomp or pride or pretension in him. He is the humble God. It's, it's big stuff. But it's not left hanging there. Paul's not wanting to give a grand theological idea. He just wants to tell us how to live in the church. Because that's what he's talking about. We're going to finish a couple of minutes thinking about church life. Do nothing, he says, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Imagine a community. A community as big as this one. Where nobody is showing up to live out their ambitions to pander to their vain conceit no one uses the church these gatherings any of the committees or ministries of the church as a vehicle for power or influence the leaders instead understand themselves to be servants they give of themselves sacrificially for the good of the people As I was writing that and I thought, imagine that, I found a a joy in my heart, something like the joy Paul talks about. Because actually, for the very greatest majority of instances I could think of, our leaders have that spirit. Praise God. Praise God. Pray for them. Pray for us. Imagine a place where we really do consider others better than ourselves. That means it's a place where we celebrate the success of another person. Where we don't compete to get to the top for the the limelight to to fall on me. We're determined to, to lift each other up. Success isn't defined by my success. It's defined by the, the flourishing of the whole group. Imagine a place where each one looked not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is a place where the crash road is always full. Because who's going to see somebody stuck? Who's going to see the the young families maybe floundering here and there, not helped or encouraged. Imagine a place where nobody sits back waiting for everyone else to wait on them. Do you know when that happens in your family, it's a real pain? You know when you have the Christmas dinner on and some people do all the work and the others do the sofa hugging, you know, just... not good because we're not supposed to live that way we're supposed to consider the interests of others 
Imagine a place where the elders, some of our elders are very overstretched, and I've mentioned this occasionally. And on top of all their other responsibilities, they open their homes and they lead discipleship groups at great sacrifice in some cases. Imagine if they were leading groups that were competing with each other, the members were competing with each other to volunteer, to host the group, to lead the group, to offer life to the group, rather than sitting, saying, oh yeah, that's the, he's the leader, he'll do it for me. Imagine that kind of a community. To sum that up, imagine a community where, where most of us had hit the switch, or at least occasionally were hitting the switch. You, you know about the switch? The switch is the thing you have to hit between where you park your car and when you arrive at the front door, okay? Because your default position when you're coming to Sunday worship or to any other gathering is, you know, I'm coming, I hope it's worth my while, what am I going to get out of this? Okay, that's, that's the default position. So back here somewhere, if you have a look, it's easier for me to find because I don't have much hair, but somewhere under here is the switch. And you just push it up. And instead of saying, what am I going to get out of this? I start to say, what can I give? Who's going to be there today that I could bless? That I could encourage? Who's going through? I'm having a hard time, but there's often somebody in the room who's having it worse. I saw a few of you nodding. I think you know about the switch. I think you know what's there. Have a look. Just see if you can find it. That's the invitation of this passage. Jesus Christ had a, did a, a cosmic hitting of the switch exercise. He is the center of all things. If there's one person in the universe who's allowed to say, it's all about me, it's him. But he hits the switch, leaves it all behind and says, it's not all about me, it's all about you. And I give my life for you to give you what you need to to win your forgiveness, your salvation, your welcome into the family. Folks, that's really what I think Paul's talking about in these opening verses of Philippians chapter 2. He invited us in the closing verses of chapter 1 to live in, in a way that's worthy of the gospel. I think with, with the help of the Spirit, if we could begin to live out uh, what, what he's invited us to there, then, then I think the gospel will, will shine as we share it. When a community like that lives like that, then people start to want to hear its message. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for the work you did for us when you died on the cross. We have understood many of us for years and for most of our lives, that that's the bedrock of our salvation. That's the point at which you can offer us life in place of death. 
But Jesus, you don't want that work of yours to leave us unchanged. You've lived your life to, to invite us into a new way of life. You've invited us to to walk in your ways, to have the same attitude that you had. Lord, we pray that today your, your beauty, your sacrificial humility would, would once again have spoken to us. But Lord, help us to make the connection to see that you invite us to live also in a similar way. Help us to believe that with your Spirit's help we can live this way. But maybe before anything else, Lord, help us to want to. Lord, you might need to flick the switch and then help us to live it out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.